Hey, we're in. Hey, we're in Revelation chapters two and three. I'm not going to read the whole thing, so I encourage y'all read it at home if and when you get a chance. Um, but y'all can turn there just to kind of reference, kind of skim over it. I want to open in Jethro fashion with a story. My wife, uh, she worked here for a couple years. Her name was Cherokee. She used to work for a cable company, which shall not be named because of the podcast. <laughs> and they had a cable tech who shall not be named because I forgot his name, actually. It's not a terrible story about him. We'll call him Bob. And he was awesome, just a really nice guy. He was friendly, he was funny, he was really intelligent, inventive, as we'll see later. He um, had moved here, I think, from Nigeria, and just like everybody loved him. He always got good evaluations from customers, and so we were all, I mean, I worked there too, but Megan kind of got to see all this side of things. We were pretty surprised when he got a really bad eval. We were even more curious when it just said, monkey ate the cat. <laughs> what? So of course all the superiors have to go in there and like ask him, what's going on? Turns out this guy had a pet monkey. And it's not clear where he acquired the pet monkey, but um, this guy had trained his pet monkey to go and run cables, which like if you've ever worked any kind of job, we have to go in attics, like that is hot and nasty and hard work. So he trained his monkey to like run cables. And his monkey would climb up there, and like you would get paid more money if you did jobs faster. So this guy would just fly through jobs. And he did this without any kind of problem. Work. Until his monkey went rogue and assassinated this poor lady's cat. Now, some of y'all might know from comments I've made earlier that I am not a cat person. Some of y'all are like crying inside. In my mind, that's an added bonus. You get your cable installed, you get some pest control, uh, but this lady was not too thrilled about her cat being murdered by this monkey. So unfortunately, the monkey had to you know, not join any more jobs, but the guy was fine. He was an awesome guy, really cool guy. Everybody loved him and still loved him despite his monkey's checkered past. Why am I telling you this story? Number one, it's just interesting. I've never known someone who's trained a monkey to do anything, um, especially anything that, that cool. But uh, we're talking about evals today, not your Thursday evals, not even praise sandwiches. Do we still do praise sandwiches? Is that all that? Do we? Do you guys know what that is? Do we? Uh, are we supposed? I don't know. Uh, if anyone was here, Tron might remember this, maybe. We used to do physical, like written evals. And so on Wednesday, you would sit down with your person and tell them to their face whether they were good or bad. And then Friday, you'd sit down and say, here's how you got better, here's how you got worse. Um, be thankful, we don't do that anymore. We're not talking about work evals, we're not talking about Camp Thurman evals, we're talking about a spiritual evaluation. And this is what Jesus sends to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, there's seven churches. Y'all can read through those on your own time. Again, I encourage y'all to do that. But what you start to notice is these seven messages or letters, whatever you call them, all have a pretty consistent format. What's also interesting is these seven letters were sent to all of the churches. So if I'm living in Ephesus, I can read what happened in Laodicea. If I'm in Pergamum, I can read everything that Smyrna is doing right or wrong. Um, so imagine like if we did evals at camp, 
and it's like Friday, and they call you up on Zion, and they just evaluate you in front of all the staff. Like, hey, here's what they're doing, good and bad. Um, imagine if they evaluate you and keep it down in camp records for everybody for years and years to read whether or not you did a good job that week. That's kind of what's happening here. They're just saying, Jesus is saying, hey, here's what you're doing right, here's what you're doing wrong. This is not just for them, it's for all of God's people throughout eternity to hear these evaluations and, and try to understand better what it looks like to be faithful. Every letter starts out, it says, um, you know, to the angel at the church of Ephesus or Smyrna, for like wherever they are. And y'all probably want to know, wait, what's the angel of that church? Scholars want to know that too. Nobody knows for sure. It could be a guardian angel. It could be like a bishop or an elder, like an authoritative person that they just call an angel because like tons of stuff in Revelation is sort of figurative. It could be messenger, right? So the, the word for angel literally just means messenger. And so message, like angels are messengers from God to people. So it could just be the person who's carrying the messages to these churches. It could be like a heavenly counterpart to earthly things. It could be like, there's so many options. I tend to think it's probably a bishop um, or a ruler, someone who's kind of in charge of that area. It could also just be kind of the general spirit of the church. like. Just calling that angel figuratively. We don't know for sure. That's just another example of like a smaller detail. It really doesn't change the actual meaning of the text. The whole point is that Jesus is speaking to his people um, and to their angel, whatever that means. The second thing that every letter has is a description of Jesus based on what we saw in chapter one. Um, for, there's some exceptions, but for the most part, it's based on chapter one. So it's Hey, here's what the one who has, you know, burning eyes that, you know, are like flames of fire. Here's the one speaking to you who has feet like burnished bronze. Here's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And so it's drawing from that imagery of Christ as sovereign, as authoritative, speaking to his people. The other thing you might miss is it says, thus says, or these are the words of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, that's a formula that we see throughout all the prophets. And they say, thus says the Lord. And so once again, this is taking Jesus and it's putting him on the same level as the God of Israel. It's saying, Jesus is Yahweh. <laughs> this is the one true God speaking to you. This is the son of God. He has the right to speak authoritatively in your life. He has the right to speak encouragement into your life. He is the one true God. And so he's speaking to you guys. He's speaking truth into your life. So it starts with the angel. It says, thus says Jesus Christ. Something else, every single like the actual content of these messages starts out with the phrase, I know. So this is Jesus speaking. He says, I know. He says, I know your works. He says, I know where you live, which like sounds like a threat to us. But in that context, he's saying, I know about the city that you're living in. I know it's hard to be a Christian where you are. I know your context. I know what's going on in your surrounding area. He says, I get it. He says, I know your suffering. I know your poverty. Right. So it just starts out with Jesus saying, I get it. All of these messages are, are kind of contextually based. In other words, they're written to these churches and there's stuff going on in their history or their culture. So for example, Pergamum, the Christians there were being tempted with um, idol worship. So they would be invited to these parties. They would be tempted to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. Like that's probably not a temptation that you guys face, but they were saying, hey, if I'm gonna fit in, I need to worship these false gods. And part of that is these wild, sexually sinful parties. And part of that is eating food that's been sacrificed to these gods. And so Jesus says, hey, I promise you, like hang in there, be faithful. If you're faithful to me, I will give you 
manna from heaven, <laughs> and I will give you a white stone with your name written on it. And to us, we're like, I have no idea what that means. But what was manna in the Old Testament? Does anybody remember? I meant, what is it? I meant, what is it? <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, did you ask, what is it? Yeah, well, what is it? But what, like, how did that fit into the story of the Old Testament? Israel's wandering through the wilderness, and God says, hey, trust me, I'll provide food for you. Here's this stuff called manna. What is it? <laughs> That's the point. That's the joke. Uh, but eat it, and you'll be nourished. And so Jesus is contrasting that with, hey, here's food sacrificed to these pagan gods. Don't eat that. I promise I will sustain you with manna from heaven. What's the white stone with their names written on it? It says a new name written on it, I think. Nobody knows for sure. (laughs) There's lots of scholarly opinions. I think the strongest guess is that back in Greco-Roman times, you could get invited to a banquet, to a party, and they would give you a white stone with your name on it, and that was like your admissions ticket. (laughs) And so again, Jesus is saying, hey, resist the urge to blend in with this pagan culture. Don't go to their parties. Don't eat food sacrificed to their gods. Don't participate in all the worship of the emperor. Trust me, and I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. We're not totally sure what that means, but I think it's a sign of intimacy with the Lord. What are we invited to? Towards the end of Revelation, there's this wedding banquet between the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, and the church. And so Jesus is saying, hang in there, be faithful, and you are going to get this invitation to the greatest party in the entire world that has ever known or seen, which is the celebration of Christ's love for his people. So these things are just kind of situated. We, we don't really get it because we live in America in the 21st century. The Church of Sardis. Y'all, maybe y'all know this if you're like history buffs, but they had this really strong fortified city, but they were destroyed by sneak attacks at least twice in their history, which like, what a terrible thing to be known for, right? Like, oh yeah, you're from the city that keeps getting whooped at night. Um, but when Jesus is talking to them, he says, wake up, which is a way of saying, pay attention, don't let your guard down, strengthen yourselves, be fortified. And so they're sitting there knowing their cultural history, and they're like, oh yeah, that did happen. And so Jesus is comparing their spiritual life to something tragic that happened in their city's history. We also see in that same message to Sardis, there's this like thing that a lot of Christians maybe talk about, the book of life. And Jesus says, hey, to the faithful ones, I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life. And we're like, man, what in the world does that mean? Well, this is a city where there was a strong Jewish population, and lots of the Jewish population didn't believe in Jesus. And so they would kick Christians out of the synagogue, right? And so if you're at the synagogue, there's actually like a registry with all the names of people who belong there. And if you got kicked out, they would blot your name out of the list of people who were welcomed in the synagogue. And that was a big deal because the Jewish religion was recognized by the Roman government. Christianity was not. And so if you got kicked out of the synagogue, like you were really vulnerable to persecution from the government. And so again, Jesus is saying, hey, if you get kicked out of the synagogue, if you're persecuted by the government, I promise you, like, it's going to be worth it. I will not blot your name out of the book of eternal life. And Jesus even says, I will acknowledge your name before my father. So all these things, again, they're just, we miss it because this isn't our background. I'll do one more. Um, Laodicea, super wealthy. Um, They had a big time banking industry, which I didn't even know they had that back then, but that's what they say. They had bred all these sheep um, to have really, really soft fur or wool. Sheep's have wool. And um, so they were known for like this beautiful black wool. And so people from all over the world would buy their wool um, so that was a big source of their wealth. And then they had a medical school. And so they had doctors who'd come, and like their specialty was, we're going to treat eye disease. 
Now, in like 17 AD, Sardis, or uh, Laodicea was destroyed by this huge earthquake. And all the cities in Asia Minor were just hit super hard. Everybody needed help from the Roman government, except for Laodicea. They were so wealthy, they were able to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And so they were a really proud city. Um, they were very successful. They were very wealthy. The one thing that they had not great was their water sucked. It was like Pantigo water, but even worse. It was lukewarm, <laughs> right? Um, so it was lukewarm, and it had all these minerals in it. It had um, like limestone. Just, so it was like just really gross to drink. But they're wealthy, and they can solve all their problems, right? So if you want hot water for baths or for medicine, you pipe that in from the north. And so they have this huge channel piping in water from uh, the Heriopolis. And then down south, they had these big old snow-capped mountains a few miles down south, and so they'd pipe in fresh, cold drinking water from the south. You guys have maybe heard Jesus say, hey, you guys are lukewarm. Have y'all heard of like lukewarm Christianity? He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. <laughs> like Y'all are just lukewarm. Sometimes we think of that and we think, oh, lukewarm must mean that they're like average, right? They're not great Christians. They're not bad Christians. They're just lukewarm. That's not what that means. Right? Jesus is saying, if you're cold, you're valuable because you're drinking water. If you're hot, you're valuable for baths and um, medicinal purposes. But if you're lukewarm, you're just worthless. <laughs> and so Jesus isn't saying, well, you're too average. He's saying, you're worthless. You are relying on your own strength. You're not trusting in me. Right? You think that you're wealthy, but Jesus says you are poor, you're pitiful, you're blind, and you're naked. So Jesus is going after every single thing that this city holds for its own confidence, right? He says, you're poor. They think they're wealthy, but nah, y'all are poor. Y'all are spiritually impoverished, right? Do you think you have this magical ointment for your eyes, but y'all are blind? Like, y'all are spiritually blind. You think that you have this beautiful wool that people come for? No, nah, y'all are spiritually naked. And so Jesus encourages them to repent. And I love this. In this message, he says, I discipline those that I love. And so every message, even to the worst church, which is probably Laodicea, there's hope for repentance. Okay? There's a lot more. I could probably spend, like, hours on every single church um, just giving a bird's eye view. So that's what's going on. Jesus says, I know your situation. And to show that he knows it, he says things that are just relevant to every single city. He goes on, and then he commends their good works. Right? For the most part, there's a couple churches. Sardis, for the most part, just gets ripped because... They are uh, not doing great. There's a few that get a shout out. And then Laodicea. There's nothing nice that Jesus has to say about Laodicea. So like, you've heard the thing, like, if you have nothing nice to say, like, don't, well, Jesus says, I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> That's not a rule that Jesus has to follow with Christians who are being faithless. Um, but all that Sardis get kind of like a praise for, like, hey, here's the stuff you're doing right. The kinds of things that Jesus praises are good deeds, hard work. Endurance. This is like the biggest one, is endurance or perseverance through suffering, through persecution, through slander, through loneliness and isolation. Jesus just says, hey, like, if you are hanging in there and being faithful, despite your circumstances, like, I'm praising you for that. Every letter, except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, gets criticism. Like, here's all the bad stuff you're doing. Here's all the constructive criticism that y'all need to learn to um, repent. The Ephesus had forsaken their love they had at first. So in other words... They were doing a great job of like calling out false teachers, but they were just not loving people well. Um, a lot of them were following false teachers. The Nicolaitans, Balaam, Jezebel, these are probably like nicknames for people that are out there. And 
Jesus is saying, hey, like y'all are following these people that are telling you it's okay to compromise. You're following these teachers that say it's okay to mix in pagan worship with the worship of Jesus. You're following people that say it's okay to eat food that's supposed to be for idols. It's okay to um, go to these drunken parties with lots and lots of just wild pagan sex. And so all these teachers are leading people astray. That's kind of what these Old Testament references of Balaam and Jezebel represent. Um, Jesus criticizes people for being outwardly good, but inwardly wicked. <laughs> so there's the churches that Jesus says, you're um, spiritually dead, even though you act like you're alive. And people think that y'all are wealthy, but spiritually you are impoverished. And that's convicting for me. Like Jesus can look right through any kind of walls that we put up. He knows exactly where we're at. He knows our suffering, but he also knows when we put on a happy face and on the inside our souls are rotten. Um, but again, Jesus isn't just criticizing us to be mean. His heart is to transform us to walk in his ways. So there's the praise of the good stuff. There's the warnings about the bad stuff. And then he follows it up with warning or encouragement. And usually the warning is like, hey, like repent. Stop doing the bad stuff you're doing. And the encouragement is hang in there. If you're suffering, hang in there. If you're being persecuted, hang in there. Um, but there's always this word of like warning or encouragement, kind of these next steps of here's how to um, live out your, your next steps. You might read these and think, oh, Jesus is like taking away their salvation. That's not what these are. And so, for example, Jesus talks to Ephesus, who has not been loving people very well, even though their beliefs are right. And Jesus says, I'm going to take away your lampstand. So, again, we might hear them be like, oh, is Jesus saying I'm going to take away your salvation? He's talking to these individual churches, and he's saying, I'm going to take away your platform. <laughs> you think that you want to influence your city? You want to lead people to Christ? If you're not loving people well, you haven't earned the right to be heard by them. Um, so these warnings are primarily in the original context just about Jesus coming to these churches in judgment. Um, Jesus is going to come again at the end of time, right? He's going to raise the dead and judge the righteous and the wicked. I think these are about just smaller situations of he's going to let these churches fizzle out if they're not faithful. So there's that. And then the next part is every single one says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. And again, that confirms what we've been saying all along, that this is not just for these original seven churches, but it's for anybody who has ears. And I think even if you don't have ears, you're not off the hook, because it's not just about physical listening, it's about hearing with your heart, right? It's about reading this message, it's about hearing it, and then taking to heart and being transformed by the words of Christ to these people. Um, so he says, hey, if you got ears, listen to what God is saying. Don't just read it, don't just think about it, don't just learn about it. Listen to it with your heart and with your life. Let it transform who you are. Let it draw you into faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting that it's the Spirit who says this, right? Because who's talking throughout all of these messages? He's the one who's, so, so John is writing this, the words of who? Yeah, thus says Jesus. And then it closes, says, listen to what the Spirit is saying. And so there's God the Son and God the Holy Spirit working together to um, reveal to us what God's will is and what we're supposed to do to be faithful. The last thing in um, every letter is a promise for overcomers. Um, it's a promise for those who conquer, those who are victorious, different translations handle that differently. Um, this is a big theme in Revelation, is the theme of conquering, the theme of victory. But what's tricky is we also see wicked people conquer the church. We see bad people murder Christians, right? So this happened to Antipas. They said, hey, you've seen Antipas get murdered. <laughs> And so what we're coming to is the definition of victory, the definition of success is radically different in the kingdom of God. All right? 
Um, we follow Jesus. We follow the Lamb who has been um, slaughtered, right? It says, I've, I've looked and I saw a Lamb looking as if he's been slain. And so one way that we follow Jesus is that we win <laughs> through letting evil do its worst to us. Right? Like, how was Jesus faithful? How was Jesus successful? How did Jesus conquer? He just got up on the cross and let sin and Satan take it all out on him. But Jesus' victory was when God raised him from the dead three days later. And so being victorious in Roman times, in our time, it looks different than victory that the world thinks. Right? And so in America, like, what does it look to be successful? What does it look like to be a winner? Right? You make lots of money, you have a big house, Right, uh, you get the car, you get the job, you get the girl or the guy, whatever. In our minds, even if you know that's not the truth, your heart is being discipled by the world to think that that's what success looks like. Right, and so we have to consistently remind ourselves that Jesus's definition of success looks radically different than the world's definition of success. And so, to overcome or to be victorious means nothing less than to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Right, like that's it. Like faithfulness is success in God's eyes, all right? That's hard to do, and we have to remind ourselves of that regularly, all right? Um, Sozo's over there looking threateningly at me. All right. What you'll see in these is you'll see all these promises to people who are victorious. That's how these letters all kind of end out. It's probably a promise about eternal life, but I don't want y'all to walk away thinking that we earn eternal life by being faithful, <laughs> right? And so there's all these like beautiful promises. It's not just like, hey, do this and you'll get to go to heaven. <laughs> wow, <laughs> hate to see it. All right, I'm gonna finish this. I'm almost done. All right, don't don't read this as, hey, just be a good person, just work hard, be faithful, you'll go to heaven. Our faithfulness is a result of saving faith. Right? We are saved by faith, through God's grace, and by nothing else. Being faithful is an end result of the Holy Spirit working in our heart through our faith in Christ. I think it's beautiful. This isn't just like, hey, you'll go to heaven someday. The promises are vivid and beautiful and specific. It's you're going to eat from the tree of life. You're going to have fellowship with God for eternity. You're going to sit on the throne with Christ. What does that mean? Something in, we're going to share in his victory and rule the nations. Um, these are just incredible promises that are so much richer than we'll go to heaven someday and be these souls floating on clouds. That's not the biblical picture of eternal life, and we'll get into that more um, down the road. I'm going to close out just with kind of a few themes that this sort of pulls out, and then we will eat dinner. Number one, Jesus knows what you're going through. I love over and over, Jesus says, I know, I know, I know. I know your deeds. I know your situation. Whatever suffering you're facing, whatever struggles, whatever sin, whatever temptation, whatever just wildly complex, just all these issues coming together, Jesus knows exactly where you're at. That's encouraging, right? So Jesus knows where you're at. There's this author that I read. His name is David Pallison, and he says something like this. He says, Jesus never ministers by rote. In other words, Jesus doesn't have just a cookie-cutter approach and just come to you and say, here it is, here it is. He comes to you exactly where you are, and he walks with you through your suffering, he walks with you through your grief, he walks with you through your temptations. So that's number one. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. Number two, Jesus loves us too much to allow us to live as half-hearted Christians. All right, Jesus loves us too much to allow us to live as half-hearted Christians. Constantly we see the theme, repent. <laughs> Repent. Remember. Remember where you used to be spiritually. 
Um, remember the Lord's faithfulness. Hold tightly to the gospel. Jesus loves us too much to allow us just to continue walking in wickedness. And so he comes to us and he tells us hard truths, right? We have hard truths from Jesus in scripture, right? If you read scripture, James says it's like a mirror. You hold it up and you just see your life. You see a reflection of what God's called you to be and you see the ways that you fall short. And that's a good thing. I said this at the start of the summer, but if you want to see revival in your life and in our community, like the first place you start is with the holiness of God and that draws you to your sin because no revival starts without a reckoning of sin in our own lives. And that's beautiful. Like there's something so encouraging about letting Jesus through the Holy Spirit just come into your heart and just tell you, here's the spaces of brokenness. Here's where you're wandering astray. Here's where you're compromising. Here's where you need to repent. And there's nothing better than walking with Jesus and, and having a good understanding of God's holiness and our repentance in that is the most loving thing that Jesus can give you. Last thing is that Jesus sees and rewards your faithfulness. And faithfulness looks different for everybody. You're all facing different circumstances. You're all facing different temptations, different trials. Faithfulness might look like you're walking through suffering right now. And being faithful to Jesus means you say, Lord, I don't know why you're letting this happen, but I trust you. Faithfulness might mean that you're walking with friends who are not walking with Jesus and you need to say no to some things. It might mean it's time to share the gospel with them. All right, Being faithful to Jesus means giving things up if you have to compromise to get them. It means letting Jesus reorient your entire vision for what the good life looks like, what success looks like. Being faithful means letting Jesus determine what your hopes and your dreams and your goals are, even if that means letting other good dreams die. So I'm not going to make y'all do like a self-evaluation, but I want y'all to think about this, right? If you've played sports, you've been evaluated, right? Like your coaches say, hey, work on this. Hey, we're watching film. You did this wrong in the game. Do better next time. Everybody who's worked at Camp Thurman has been evaluated. If you're in choir or music, your coaches evaluate you. But when's the last time you've had someone just come up to you and like speak into your life on a spiritual level? and say, hey, this is what I see in your walk with the Lord right now. Here's the good stuff. Like, it's good to encourage people in the stuff that they're doing right as they walk with Jesus. But how often do we do this for our friends? How often do we ask our friends to say, hey, where am I, like, what do I need to do better on? Where do I need to to be more faithful to Jesus? Where am I wandering astray? Those are the kinds of things that will change your life. So open yourself up to these hard truths from Jesus, number one, first and foremost, through his word but then also have friends and mentors and accountability partners come into your life and tell you the hard truths because it kind of sucks to hear it at the time, but that's what Jesus calls us towards is growing in godliness and faithfulness to him. So, hey, that's all I've got. Um, We will eat dinner. If y'all have any questions, I know there's a lot in this section, in this chapter. If anything wasn't clear, y'all have the QR code or the link through Slack so you can send in some questions. Um, I'm going to pray and bless the food and then we can dish up and eat and fellowship. Uh, Lord, we love you. Thanks for your word. Thank you for um, the truth of the gospel that um, tells us hard things, (laughs) that wakes us up to um, just the dark spaces of our hearts that need uh, the light of your son to illuminate. Um, Thank you for the hope of the gospel that reminds us that whatever we're suffering isn't forever, but that you have overthrown sin and evil and brokenness and you're going to make all things new, that everything sad will become untrue one day. Um, Help us, whether we're walking through sin or suffering or both, 
whatever we're going through, just help us to be faithful. Um, help us to be the kind of community that draws each other towards faithfulness in your son. Um, we love you so much. Amen.